0: Listening to The Corbett Report.
1: CorbettReport.com. Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the third day of September 2012 like to welcome everyone back to the podcast, and remind them all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous editions of this podcast, as well as interviews, episodes, articles, and videos that I've created over the past five years, all commercial-free and freely available to download, and brought to you, of course, by the subscribers of The Corbett Report. So once again, thank you to all of you out there for subscribing and or purchasing my DVDs. Without your support, this would literally not be possible, so please give yourselves a big pat on the back. I'd also like to, as always, let people know about some of the other shows that I'm uh, appearing on or uh, are associated with. For example, as you know, every week I'm on the Radio Liberty Show with host Stan Monteith that's on GCN on Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific, that's 7 p.m. Eastern, but I will not be on today, if you are listening to this, on the 3rd of September 2012, as it is Labor Day holiday in the United States, so there will be no Radio Liberty today. I'm also on the National Intel Report with John Statmiller every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, but uh, and I believe I will be on this week. Uh, Last week I was on the Vinnie Eastwood show, so that I'll put the link to that in the show notes for today's episode, and I have other interviews and media appearances coming up. So as always, please follow my Twitter feed for all of the latest that's happening on CorbettReport.com, as well as all of my media appearances and regular updates from FukushimaUpdate.com, which I would like to recommend once again to people on the Fukushima situation, as it is being updated every few days, and there are still lots and lots of interesting information coming out of Fukushima. But on that note, we have a ton of information to get through today, as always, so let's get straight into the podcast. Welcome to episode 241 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Truth About the Gene Revolution. For those of you who have been keeping track of the latest environmental Armageddon crises at home, you may have noticed that just as the recent heat wave in certain parts of the United States, as well as a very timely piece of science by press release from the esteemed Dr. James Hansen, which we covered in a recent episode of Corbett Report Radio, have once again focused the American public's attention on the scourge of man-made global warming, so too has that very same heatwave-slash-drought focused world attention once again on the problem of the food supply.
2: The United Nations Food Agency is warning the world could face a drought-fuelled food crisis as happened five years ago. Food prices surged in July after falling in the previous three months, and the UN says they could rise further. It's particularly worried about the effects of countries restricting exports. Concern about extreme hot and dry weather in the US Midwest sent maize to a record high last month, up almost 23% from June. Wheat jumped 19%, and untimely rains in Brazil meant sugar prices leapt 12%. Meat and dairy prices were little changed in July, but that situation may not last as higher feed costs could prompt farmers to reduce their herds. The impact will be greatest on the world's poorest countries which have to import food as they don't produce enough domestically. The charity Oxfam says that the surge in grain prices could mean hunger and malnourishment for millions of people around the world. That's in addition to the nearly 1 billion who are already too poor to feed themselves.
1: Now, this current food shortage crisis of 2012 is something that is a very real problem and it deserves to be taken seriously. Whereas higher food prices may be just an inconvenience for you and I in the developed world, If for the billion or so people in the lesser developed world who are just eking out an existence at subsistence levels, higher food prices can literally mean the difference between eating and starving to death. So this is not a problem to be taken lightly or to be dismissed easily. But just as the particular details of the heat wave in America has suddenly refocused the American public's attention on the scourge of man-made global warming and the proposed solutions to that supposed problem, so too has the recent particular details of the 2012 food crisis once again drawn attention to the problem of the global food supply generally, especially as we have been inundated over the past several months with the propaganda about, well, the world's population has just ticked over to 7 billion people. How can we possibly support that type of population level? Especially as the UN's growth forecasts estimate that population going up to as many as 9 billion by 2050, before beginning a decline. So once again, the Neo-Malthusians, those ideological descendants of the chicken little Thomas Malthus, who was wrong in every single aspect of his predictions a couple of centuries ago, are now once again warning us that we are on the brink of basically extinction because of these unsupportable population levels. This is a uh, tough nut to crack. If only there was some family-run multi. Billion dollar foundation that could come along and save the day for us. Oh, wait, there's the Rockefeller Foundation.
0: And the risk of food insecurity is really accelerated by the risk of climate change. Um, it has a real opportunity to disrupt all that we've achieved in trying to increase productivity and to reduce food insecurity. We have got to adapt, we've got to become more resilient to all kinds of severe weather interruptions that affect everyone's lives. That's why the Rockefeller Foundation is intently focused on seeking and scaling innovation that can help mitigate the effect of climate change. We focus on trying to increase the resilience of individuals as well as communities, indeed the resilience of entire economies, to the impact of changing weather and rainfall patterns, extreme weather events, and unforeseen climate crises. But the more we've worked on these issues, the more we see that we cannot solve these problems with 20th century solutions alone, that we have got to find 21st century technologies, 20th, 21st century innovation.
1: Oh, yeah. It's the Rockefeller Foundation. Can you feel the groove? They're getting funky in Africa and helping out all those poor black babies because they love them so much. But wait a second. There's just one thing that kind of confuses me about all of this because... Although that video mentions absolutely nothing about it, it seems that just a few years ago, the Rockefeller Foundation was very heavily promoting a very specific solution to this global food supply problem and specifically the problem in Africa. And uh, for example, we could turn to cornell.edu, which back in 2001 had a story about the Rockefeller Foundation president at the time, Gordon Conway, pimping something called biotech as the key to easing hunger. And it says, quote, biotechnology is an important tool for alleviating hunger in Africa, according to agricultural ecologist Gordon Conway, a pioneer of the Green Revolution in the 1960s and now president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Conway, long an advocate of using technology as a means of alleviating hunger and poverty, was speaking in a Cornell public lecture in G10 of the Biotechnology Building, October 4th, end quote, etc, etc, etc. So I'm not quite sure why the Rockefeller Foundation, which has demonstrably helped along the the birth and the and the funding of the biotech industry into what it is today with literally hundreds of millions of dollars of grants and of course all of its uh, resources through its rockefeller university etc why they don't really mention the biotech aspect of the work they're doing in africa anymore why could that possibly be
2: Scientists involved in a 20-year research project into genetically modified wheat have appealed directly to protesters not to tear up their experimental crop. The wheat has been modified to keep common pests, aphids, at bay. Its developers claim it could substantially reduce the use of pesticides, but protesters have vowed anyway to rip out the plants, saying the pollen could contaminate native plants, with unknown consequences. Police are investigating after Greenpeace protesters destroyed a field of genetically modified wheat in Canberra. The CSIRO site was breached early this morning. The activists went on to damage around half a hectare of the plants. The government science agency says it's still assessing how much the sabotage has set back their trials.
3: More than a million people have now signed a petition calling for a complete ban on the use of genetically modified crops in Europe. It comes after the bloc gave its approval in the summer to the limited growing of some crops. Now, it's led to accusations the US, which is the world's major player in the industry, is putting unfair pressure on the EU.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right. Popular opposition. Well, that's just a bunch of uninformed maniacs who go around protesting anything that they don't fully understand. Clearly, these are people who don't understand the science of biotechnology, like the Rockefeller Foundation and people who are directly funded by their grant dollars. But uh, it is what it is, and I guess do gooders of the world, like the Rockefellers and the foundation which bears their name, have to go a little bit underground with what what it is they're specifically doing to address food security in Africa and other parts of the world because of that pesky popular opposition that has arisen to genetically engineered foods. But uh, luckily, their brother brother-in-arms in this philanthropy that is going to change the face of the world as we know it. Bill Gates of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is not quite as shy about openly discussing the biotech revolution. There were lots of questions that came in uh, regarding GMOs. A lot of people want to know how you balance the opportunity to address food scarcity with the concerns that many have around GMOs.
4: Right. So genetically modified organisms, that's where you create a new seed by using some biological approach that changes the gene. Uh, One example is you can put a gene in that prevents the plant from getting disease, and so a disease that's wiping out the crops of poor people and causing tens of thousands to starve, you can get rid of that. The techniques we're using here were actually invented for human medicine. And in the case of human medicine, we don't have a total ban on all drugs that are created this way, nor do we have a uh, total acceptance. What we do is each drug gets created, it's uh, trialed, and then each country has scientists who look at, okay, what are the benefits and what are the risks of that new drug? And they decide. Uh, and it's a very sophisticated system that's trying to maximize human welfare. For plants, it's going to be the same. Uh, that is, to a priori say, no, we don't want that seed that blocks disease, uh, You know, that's dooming the poorest to never have uh, this kind of tool. And it'd be ironic, since many of these advances are creating things like drought tolerance that poor people only need because rich people have been emitting so much CO2 that the climate conditions are worse for those poor people. Now making sure that there's that scientific uh, depth so that they can analyze crop by crop, uh, that's something that uh, the foundation is helping to invest in, but each country will have its own decisions. And there are on the pipeline some fantastic crops that need to be looked at. You know, we have decades of experience where rich countries have used GMOs. Some countries like South Africa, Burkina Faso, Egypt uh, are using uh, some GMOs right now. But the, the big wins uh, are ones that, that come later, and you know, each of those should be looked at as a, as a special case, not ruled out or ruled in based on uh, the uh, general perception.
1: Well, there it is in black and white. It seems like a pretty open and shut case. There is a global food shortage and there is a food crisis caused by the fact of the ever-increasing population. And the uh, the food resources of the planet simply can't quote cope with that many people on this planet. So... Either we're going to have to have a mass reduction in population or we're going to have to rely on this genetically engineered food in order to increase the food supply to the point where it can sustain this type of population. There's just no other alternative, right? well, wrong. And there are many, many reasons why that is scientifically not the case, why we can actually show and demonstrate that that is, in fact, very much standing the entire issue on its head to get it completely 180 degrees, 100% wrong. But... In order to understand where all of this is coming from, what the agenda behind all of this is, why it's being pushed, and why the outright demonstrable lies and fraud that is being perpetuated in the name of this GMO technology is being perpetuated, we have to look back to the roots of this entire paradigm, this entire idea that this technological innovation will feed the people of the world. And in order to do that, we have to break down the preceding revolution to this genetic engineering revolution, which is being touted as the second Green Revolution, because of course there was a first Green Revolution, which occurred earlier in the 20th century, starting around the 1940s. And that Green Revolution, too, had very much a lot to do with the rockefeller foundation and its support of certain technologies ideas and scientists so first let's start by getting a handle on the green revolution the the original green revolution what that was all about and then we can start breaking down the current gene revolution as it's being touted so first let's get the the official story of what the green revolution was and how it helped the people of the world
3: we faced an enormous crisis a generation ago the early 1950s, 1960s, and for a reason. It was the first shift in the, ulti- in the fundamental strategy of agriculture that had occurred in 10,000 years. Agriculture, because it's catastrophic, must constantly have new land. must constantly have new land because it also creates excess population, and those people need a place to go. So, from the beginning of domestication of wheat 10,000 years ago in the Middle East, in what is now Iraq, on, ironically enough, to about 1960, agriculture had a single strategy, which was it compensated for its weaknesses by taking new land. In 1960, we ran out of new land. Period. There was no more essentially, and we've, yes, we've colonized some new land since 1960, but we've lost an equal amount of things like salinization, loss of water. So basically, our arable land base, our farmable land base, is the same as it was today as in 1960. At the same time, we were faced with a period of enormous population growth. We were at three billion people then, and a lot of real smart people were looking at those numbers and saying we're going to see famine within our lifetime. Massive, widespread, die-off famine. Paul Ehrlich, the biologist, was among those people and probably the most famous of the people to do that. And His predictions never came to pass. It's not because his numbers were wrong, they were right. What he didn't understand at the time was a revolution that was brewing in the background. It was called the Green Revolution fellow named Norman Borlaug, financed by Rockefeller Foundation money, was learning a trick that created a new strategy for agriculture. And while we call it the green revolution, and call it pesticides and fertilizer and a number of other things, it was something quite simple, much simpler than all those things. It was short plants. By dwarfing both wheat and rice, he was able to create a plant that increased its harvest index, that is its primary productivity. More of that productivity was dedicated to seed as opposed to leaves and stem. But also because of that short architecture, they were able to hype that plant with chemical fertilizers and water, so it would support a heavier seed head. The result was a tripling of production, at least a tripling of production of both rice and wheat. As a result of that, something like 75% of human nutrition today is covered by corn, wheat, and rice, three grains. The ultimate result of that was we were able to increase human population, support that extra population, plus ramp it up further. So, in my lifetime, human population has doubled from three to six billion people.
1: Well, that's the story of the Green Revolution in a nutshell, at any rate, or at least the story that they want you to know about. And who is they? Well, of course, it's the very people who underwrote and literally financed the Green Revolution into existence, the Rockefeller Foundation and the other corporations that were very much involved in furthering and perpetuating this new paradigm of the mid-20th century of agribusiness and agrochemical Uh, Production as the only industrial means of providing food for the people of the world and solving the global food supply crisis. And that this was very much, very demonstrably a business endeavor by the Rockefellers and their cronies is something that we will get into in greater detail in a moment. But first, let's just concentrate on some of the propaganda that is circulating in recent years about the success of the Green Revolution. And this is often framed, or at least has been in the last few years, by taking a look specifically at one researcher, a Rockefeller-funded researcher of course, Norman Borlaug who traveled to Mexico in the 1940s and began a process of trying to get Mexico independent in terms of its wheat production, which is something that was not thought possible until the Rockefeller money-funded scientists showed up and, uh, lo and behold increased yields startlingly. A success story if ever there was one. And uh, certainly by the propaganda that's put out there these Days Norman Borlaug is basically a saint on earth, or at least he was. He recently passed away, but was, um, by some accounts, the greatest man of all time.
5: Well, when you go into a field, because of my competitive spirit, in part that I learned from athletics. Uh, you should go in with the passion to try to do your best. And that's why the people that I brought to Mexico, I always told them on the first day, we're going to teach you to be rebels. Not with guns and daggers, but with science and technology. Well, as a farmer and someone who was involved in, in the political world, I was uh, excited and thrilled uh, when he won the Nobel Peace Prize back in the very early 70s. And ever since then, uh, Norman Borlaug has been a hero of mine. So we've been taught in China about Green Revolution. And we know very well that in our textbook, the father of the Green
3: Revolution, Norman Borlaug. It really is true that he has fed hundreds of millions of people in effect with his science, uh, his commitment, his uh, willingness to devote day in day out of his extraordinarily uh, rich and long life uh, to the pursuit of human betterment.
5: And I am not one to sit idly by and see man breed himself into a corner by increasing his numbers faster than food production is being increased. And if I have anything to contribute to this world, when I know that our scientific facts are right and we have materials that can be brought together in a meaningful production program, I'm going to play that card and play it hard. Norman Borlaug changed the world. Through his work in plant breeding, he touched over a billion lives. So how will you make a difference? How will you leave your fingerprints on the world? Like Norman, you will find that knowledge, vision, passion, and determination are key.
6: Teller and I love to play this greatest person in history card game that we invented. It's really simple. We have this deck with uh, all the contenders, all the people that might be the greatest person in history. Then we each uh, pick a few cards and compare and see who wins. So I'm just going to... No, no, I don't, I don't need any more. I'll stand pat good take all the rest put all the rest for yourself i'll just take this one now to play at home you have to decide how to judge great so you just invent some criteria go ahead and invent whatever you want i'm going to bet uh, all of this you know you might say humanitarian i'll bet these 2 you Might say uh science great science you might say you know i'm going to do my dad's ring too my ring my father gave me you might say technology let me just uh, yeah i'm gonna throw the i'm gonna i'm gonna bet everything okay you're gonna see me you're gonna see me because um i got lucky I drew Norman Borlaug, so it looks like I win.
1: Yes, well, that is the story as it's been sold to us, and that is the propaganda that exists right now, which basically says that Norman Borlaug single-handedly saved a billion people on this planet from starvation, and I'm sure he walks on water and his feces doesn't smell, or didn't smell, I suppose. But, uh, But there may be some facts that complicate that narrative just a wee bit, and... Once again, let's leave it to the alternative media to roll up our sleeves and start examining some of those facts. So in order to do that and to to complicate the narrative, and first let me say this is not to disparage Norman Borlaug as a person. I have no doubt that he truly believed in what he was doing and was doing it for the best interests of the people involved, and that the Green Revolution did enjoy its own success in increasing yields in the early years of that revolution, and that was a very real thing that affected real human beings. So it is not to disparage that aspect of it per se, but just to disparage the the reification of this Green Revolution and thinking that it was the absolute pinnacle of human achievement, etc., etc., and that it has single-handedly saved a billion people from starvation and all of the other propaganda that is put out there the pr that is put out there to sell this as if it was not a very specific agenda done for very specific reasons but instead with some philanthropic project done because the rockefellers and people of their ilk just love those brown and black babies so much they care so much about them they want every single one fed properly Well, there may just be facts behind this whole facade that complicate that narrative just a wee bit. So let's start examining that. And to do that, we're going to turn to an absolute essential must-read. It's called Seeds of Destruction by F. William Engdahl, previous guest here on The Corbett Report. And if you don't have this book yet, please go out and get it it is absolutely essential to understanding the greater ramifications of what is being sold to us in this gene revolution and also of course what was being sold in the green revolution half a century ago and it's by the very same players of course the gates have been added to the mix and some of the other new players to the scene but it's still the rockefellers and ford foundation and some of the same players from the green revolution are now involved in the gene revolution And there is a very much a corporate agenda to this entire revolution of really monopolization of the food supply of the earth. And if that phrase didn't just send shivers down your spine, I hope that by the end of this episode you will understand the real ramifications of what's going on here and the fact that it is not this perfectly beautiful philanthropic agenda that has been done because these people care so much about the brown and black babies of the world. So let's start going through some of the information contained in this Seeds of Destruction book I would love to be able to read the entire book verbatim, let alone just chapter 7 I'd like to read from start to finish for you, but I think that would perhaps be counterproductive. It would be best for you to go out and get the book itself and go and read through it and truly make notes and follow the links in the documentation that he cites to really get a handle on what this agenda is and who's behind it and why and how it is being funded into existence. But let's just take some quotes from Chapter 7 of Seeds of Destruction, entitled Rockefeller and Harvard Invent USA Agribusiness. Very, very important chapter, especially as it relates to this Green Revolution. And that complicates some of the stories that we're now told about Norman Borlaug and what he accomplished and what it really means. So reading from that chapter, quote, When the Rockefeller Foundation's Norman Borlaug came into Mexico in the 1950s, He worked on hybrid forms of rust-resistant wheat and hybrid corn types, not yet the genetically engineered projects to come several decades later. Behind the facade of agricultural and biological science, however, the Rockefeller Group was pursuing a calculated strategy through its Green Revolution during the 1950s and 1960s. The heart of its strategy was to introduce modern agriculture methods to increase crop yields, and, so went the argument, thereby to reduce hunger, and lessened the threat of potential communist subversion of hungry, unruly nations. It was the same seducing argument used years later to sell its gene revolution. The Green Revolution was the beginning of global control over food production, a process made complete with the gene revolution several decades later. The same companies, not surprisingly, were involved in both, as were the Rockefeller and other powerful U.S. foundations. In 1966, the Rockefeller Foundation was joined by the considerable financial resources of the Ford Foundation, another U.S. private tax-exempt foundation which enjoyed intimate ties to the U.S. government, intelligence, and foreign policy establishment. Together with the Ford resources, the Rockefeller Foundation's Green Revolution went into high gear. That year of 1966, the government of Mexico along with the Rockefeller Foundation set up the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center, The center focused its work on a wheat program, which originated from breeding studies begun in Mexico in the 1940s by the Rockefeller Foundation. Their efforts in food and agriculture received a boost that same year when U.S. President Lyndon Johnson announced a drastic shift in U.S. food aid to developing countries under PL 480, namely that no food aid would be sent unless a recipient country had agreed to preconditions which included agreeing to the Rockefeller Agenda for Agriculture Development, stepping up their population control programs, and opening the doors to interested American investors. In 1970, the Rockefellers' Norman Borlaug won the Nobel Prize. Interestingly enough, it was not for biology, but for peace. The same prize Henry Kissinger was to receive several years later. Both men were also protégés of the influential Rockefeller circles. In reality, the Green Revolution introduced U.S. agribusiness into key developing countries under the cover of promoting crop science and modern techniques. The new wheat hybrids in Mexico required modern chemical fertilizers, mechanized tractors and other farm equipment, and above all they required irrigation, which meant pumps driven by oil or gas energy. The Green Revolution methods were suitable only in the richest crop areas, and it was deliberately aimed at the richest farmers, reinforcing the old semi-feudal latifundist divisions between wealthy landowners and poor peasant farmers. In Mexico, the new, wh- the new wheat hybrids were all planted in the rich, newly irrigated farm areas of the northeast. All inputs, from fertilizers to tractors and irrigation, required petroleum and other inputs from advanced industrial suppliers in the United States. Oil and agriculture joined forces under the Rockefeller aegis. In India, the Green Revolution was limited to 20% of land in the irrigated north and northwest. It ignored the huge disparity of wealth between large feudal landowners in such areas and the majority of poor, landless peasants. Instead, it created pockets of modern agribusiness tied to large export giants such as Cargill. The regions where the vast majority of poorer peasants worked remained poor. The introduction of the Green Revolution did nothing to change the gap between rich feudal landowners and poor peasants, but overall statistics showed significant rises in Indian wheat production. We'll end the quote there, but once again, I really hope that you'll take a look at this because, once again, it goes into such detail... Detailing the links between the Rockefeller Foundation and the International Rice Research Institute and the Consultative Group on International Agriculture Research and Maurice Strong and the uh, Ford Foundation, Robert McNamara, the UN Earth Summit, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the UN Development Program, the World Bank, etc., etc., how they all tie in into an interlocking agenda that promotes U.S. agribusiness uh, interests around the world in the name of securing the food supply and making sure sure everyone has enough food to eat and meanwhile propping up old feudalist divisions between rich landowners and poor peasants farming the land making institutionalizing that and making it absolutely certain that it will continue with the exploitation of the, the the poor peasants labor because they are dependent on modern agricultural techniques which themselves have to be financed by loans which are then provided by some of the very agencies that are again promoting this agenda that gets them caught in this cycle where uh, they constantly have to keep working in order to pay off the loans which they need in order to create the crops which then require more loans etc etc it's a, a vicious circle and that's the part of the green revolution which is almost never looked at and certainly never looked at in the pr campaign that unfortunately a lot of the green revolution propaganda has become But uh, it gets even worse when we start getting into the gene revolution and some of the ways that the crops are being engineered into a uh, into that very paradigm and to prop that up once again and of course the most obvious example of that is the terminator seed technology which ensures that uh, poor peasant farmers will be forever tied to Monsanto and the other seed monopolists because they will have to instead of saving some of their seed and replanting it the next year they will have to continue to buy these seeds over and over from the same companies using basically the entirety of the money that they got from their last crop, because one of the other aspects of the Green Revolution was to move many farming cultures over from producing sub- subsidence crops, into producing cash crops, which cannot be used to actually feed or clothe the people of the local area, but are sold into the international market. And because of the glut of cash crops that have arisen because of the Green Revolution, it has driven down prices so that the farmers have to work the entire year to make enough money to pay the loan payments from the pre- previous year, which is a pretty interesting form of modern slave labor. And there's more to say on that as it relates to the Green Revolution. But let's start exploring another one of the myths that has been promoted regarding a technology that s- some people have said has been one of those game-changing technologies that has enabled billions of people to thrive and survive and flourish because of the the, the wonders of the, the, the people who are making this system. And that is the idea of golden rice. And golden rice is a rice that has been engineered with a type of vitamin A which will address the vitamin A shortage in the vast majority of the world, well, the, uh, the large number of the world's population who depend on rice as one of their staple foods. And uh, 2.4 billion people depend on rice as a staple food. And that is exactly why the Rockefeller Foundation and others moved into that and started applying some of their techniques to rice in order to engineer in the vitamin A that supposedly the people would so desperately need in their diet and could never be gotten from any other possible sources. It could only be achieved through this golden rice. And this is often held up as one of those examples of why this entire agenda is so important and why it's so loving and wonderful. But there's just a few facts that once again get in the way and start to complicate this idea of golden rice as being the the be-all and end-all of saving the world's population. So let's take a look again uh, later on in Seeds of Destruction at a chapter called Food is Power, in which he talks a little bit about this golden rice idea. It says, quote, By 2000, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology announced that they had successfully taken two genes from a daffodil, together with a gene of bac- a bacterium, and built it into the rice DNA in order to produce what they called provitamin A, or beta-carotene rice. Because the beta-carotene, or pro-vitamin A, which produced vitamin A inside the body, colored the rice grain orange, it was dubbed golden rice. Another brilliant marketing stroke, as everyone covets gold in whatever form. Now people could ostensibly get their daily bowl of rice and prevent blindness and other manifestations of vitamin A deficiency in their children at the same time. Children in Asia and the rest of the world had been, re- had been receiving vitamin A from other sources for centuries, The problem was not lack of natural foods containing vitamin A, but rather not enough access to those other natural sources of vitamin A. Indian biodiversity campaigner Dr. Vandana Shiva pointed out in a stinging critique of the Rockefeller Foundation golden rice promotion that the first deficiency of genetic engineering rice to produce vitamin A is the eclipsing of alternative sources of vitamin A. Per Pinstripe Anderson, head of the International Rice Research Institute, which incidentally was created by the Rockefeller Foundation, and more details of that are in this book, per Stripe Anderson, has said that vitamin A rice is necessary for the poor in Asia because we cannot reach very many of the malnourished in the world with pills. Shiva pointed out, there are many alternative to p- alternatives to pills for vitamin A supply. Vitamin A is produced by liver, egg yolk, chicken, meat, milk, butter... Beta-carotene, the vitamin A precursor, is provided by dark green leafy vegetables, spinach, carrot, pumpkin, mango, dot, dot, dot. Not mentioned in Rockefeller Foundation press releases, doctors and scientists knew that large quantities of vitamin A could in fact lead to hypervitaminosis, or vitamin A toxicity, which, in infants, could lead to permanent brain damage and other harmful effects. Moreover, the quantity of rice which a person would have to consume daily to meet the full quota of vitamin A was staggering and not humanly possible. One estimate was that an average Asian would have to eat 9 kilograms of cooked rice daily just to get the required minimum intake of vitamin A. A typical daily ration in Asia of 300 grams of rice would provide only 8% of his daily requirement. The Rockefeller Foundation's president, Gordon Conway, specially responded to these criticisms in a press release. First, it should be stated that we do not consider golden rice to be the solution to the vitamin A deficiency problem. Rather, it provides an excellent complement to fruits, vegetables, and animal products in diets and to various fortified foods and vitamin supplements. He added, I agree with Dr. Shiva that the public relations uses of golden rice have gone too far. Well, there it is, straight from the horse's mouth, right from the head of the Rockefeller Foundation, Gordon Conway himself, saying, yes, the PR, well, we kind of oversold that golden rice thing. But funny, the people who still continue to say golden rice is one of the great achievements so far of the gene revolution, don't, don't talk about that. They don't talk about those admissions. They still talk about it as an unmitigated good. Well, there is still more to be said about the type of utter punishing, crushing poverty that the gene revolution is now inflicting on the peoples of the world as the seed monopolists have cornered the market and are increasingly uh, tightening their control over many of the countries that were unfortunate enough to sign on to this revolution in its early stages as the green revolution transferred into the gene revolution and now we have these patented seed technologies which can be as i said implanted with these terminator uh, genes that basically make the second generation uh, impossible because the first generation seeds will not produce any fertile uh, seeds. The seeds will be dead. So it requires the people to keep going back to buying their seeds from these seed companies over and over, which puts them in a absolutely punishing state of poverty from which few are able to escape. And this is an aspect of the entire gene revolution that the proponents of this second green revolution don't want you to contemplate, and for obvious reasons.
7: It is a time of despair for hundreds of thousands of farmers. At this cotton auction, prices are low and they keep falling. Bagwan Rao has only received a few hundred pounds for his crop. He tells me he's taking on a lot of debt just to buy next year's seeds. Across India, farmers are struggling to keep up with a country driving forwards at a rapid pace. Kamala Surtam is now a widow. Her husband is one of many farmers who have given up and committed suicide.
0: Our husbands commit suicide out of desperation and the widows have to bear the burden of feeding and clothing and educating the children and living this hard life. Suicides have to be stopped, otherwise we will all be widows out here.
7: A few miles away in another village, and the cremation of another suicide farmer is taking place. It is a different widow, but a familiar story. More than a quarter of a million farmers have killed themselves in the last 16 years in India. That's one every 30 minutes. It is the largest wave of recorded suicides in history. The problems facing India's farmers are complex, but there are simple answers. Global trade has driven down prices and farmers who've moved away from food to cash crops like cotton are suffering. This is where the cotton is brought after it's been picked from the fields. Now this produce is being taken away to factories where it will be made into clothing. Much of that clothing, of course, will be exported to Western markets. But due to record low prices, the farmers are only getting on average about £300 to £350 a year for their entire season's work. And after they've bought new seeds, pesticides and fertilisers for next year's crops, it leaves barely enough to survive. The prospect of getting away from a hand-to-mouth lifestyle is seductive but it's also deadly. So this is the cotton that he harvested to take to
6: market before
7: he died. Ban shows me his nephew's entire harvest. A day after picking this, he killed himself by drinking pesticides. He tells me his relative had borrowed money for hybrid cotton seeds, but they were unsuitable for the climate. Outside, his wife clutches a photo. It was taken just after they were married. She'll now have to pay back the moneylenders and bring up their children on her own. India has one of the fastest growing economies in the world, but away from the cities there are few signs of progress. The number of suicides, activists say, is a symptom of a wider problem. The government is leaving the old India of the countryside to die. Alex Rossi, Sky News, Maharashtra.
1: There is no doubt that the absolutely heart-wrenching stories coming out of India in the wake of the destruction of their local economy and agriculture is a human tragedy of almost unthinkable scope and has resulted, as that report indicates, in the largest wave of suicides in history. And it is a human tragedy of, of vast proportions. And I don't think anyone is defending that, but the people who want to defend the gene revolution and the promise of this biotechnology as it is now being touted in order to avoid the genetically engineered food tag altogether, the people who are promoting this gene revolution would say, well, there are many factors at work at the Indian economy and and what specifically is happening there. It's not all because of this GM technology. And they may be right at that. And uh, th- the factors at work, for example, in India, may be contingent and not necessarily built into the system. Maybe there's some way of, of distributing these GM crops in a way that doesn't do that. And yes, these companies that are making their profits from selling these these uh, technologies, maybe that's not the the ideal solution for providing f- the people of the world with food. But it's it's what we have to make do with. So there are different ways around this for the people who want to avoid the PR nightmare of these types of situations, but they all rely on the fundamental underlying assertion which we heard, for example, Bill Gates making earlier that really this is the technology which will increase yields to the point where we can sustain the growing population of the earth because without this technology, how could we possibly feed the peoples of the world? And the only problem with that argument is that It is fundamentally wrong. Genetically modified foods do not increase yields. In fact, they decrease yields and increase reliance on pesticides and chemicals. So every single reason, ostensible reason for the promoting of this agenda is scientifically wrong and debunked. So just as a couple of examples of this, we can go into, for example, a report that was released back in 2009 by the Union of Concerned Scientists, and this is uh, posted up on CommonDreams.org from April 14th of 2009. Genetic engineering has failed to significantly boost U.S. crop yields despite biotech industry claims, new report finds. Quote, for years, the biotechnology industry has trumpeted that it will feed the world, promising that its genetically engineered crops will produce higher yields. That promise has proven to be empty, according to a new report by the Union of Concerned Scientists. Despite 20 years of research and 13 years of commercialization, genetic engineering has failed to significantly increase U.S. crop yields. The biotech industry has spent billions on research and public relations hype, But genetically engineered food and feed crops haven't enabled American farmers to grow significantly more crops per acre of land, said Doug Gurian Sherman, a biologist in the UCS Food and Environment Program and author of the report. In comparison, traditional breeding continues to deliver better results. The report Failure to Yield, Evaluating the Performance of Genetically Engineered Crops, is the first to closely evaluate the overall effect genetic engineering has had on crop yields in relation to other agricultural techniques. It reviewed two dozen academic studies of corn and soybeans, the two primary primary genetically engineered food and crops grown in the United States. Based on those studies, the UCS report concluded that genetically engineering herbicide-tolerant soybeans and herbicide-tolerant corn has not increased yields. Insect-resistant corn, meanwhile, has improved yields only marginally. The increase in yields for both crops over the last 13 years, the report found was largely due to traditional breeding or improvements in agricultural practices. And there is a link to the report so you can go and read it for yourself. But for those of you out there thinking, well, this is just a a US-centered study and a US-centered finding, so it's not really about the global state of the GM technology revolution, and it doesn't really account for the underlying technology itself, it's just the contingencies of how it's being implemented in the US. Well, no, again, there are reports that we can turn to that once again prove that the GM technology itself is not producing the results that it is supposedly going to produce. So in 2011 we had uh, from a consortium of different independently financed uh, organizations a report called the GMO, gmo emperor has no clothes which is available for download at the navdanya international website it's also also available and mirrored on the guardian.co.uk website which ran a study a story to ba- uh, back up that report to to e- explain that report's findings in october of 2011 under the headline gm crops promote superweeds food insecurity, and pesticides, say NGOs. Quote, Genetic engineering has failed to increase the yield of any food crop, but has vastly increased the use of chemicals and the growth of superweeds, according to a report by 20 Indian, Southeast Asian, African, and Latin American food and conservation groups representing millions of people. The so-called miracle crops, which were first sold in the U.S. about 20 years ago and which are now grown in 29 countries on about 1.5 billion hectares of land, have been billed as potential solutions to food crisis, climate change, and soil erosion, but the assessment finds that they have not lived up to their promises. The report claims that hunger has reached epic proportions since the technology was developed. Because besides this, only two GM traits have been developed on any significant scale, despite investments of tens of billions of dollars and benefits such as drought resistance and salt tolerance have yet to materialize on any scale. Most worrisome, say the authors of the Global Citizens Report on the State of GMOs, Is the greatly increased use of synthetic chemicals used to control pests despite biotech companies' justification that GM engineered crops would reduce insecticide use? Now, the funniest part of all of this for the would be defenders of the gene revolution out there, the very same people who put Norman Borlaug on the pedestal for being the savior of a billion people and who was part of the absolutely perfectly philanthropic idea of the green revolution, the first green revolution, which was nothing but manna from heaven and absolutely funded into existence because the people love all of these uh, foreigners and their babies so much they want to make sure that they all grow up strong and healthy, despite their avowed uh, profession for population control, such as John D. Rockefeller III's Population Council, and how, how much we have to strive to make sure they don't breed, well, yes, we want to build them up strong and healthy, But despite all of that uh, that rhetoric, we have, uh, well, Norman Borlaug himself, who himself a few decades ago was talking about how the gene revolution was being oversold and that, in fact, it would not yield to the incredible crop yield increases which the gene revolution is being touted for and which the PR wants to sell us.
5: Not too many of scientists are saying it, but a few. Oh, but the new biotechnology and the new molecular genetics is going to give us a new huge surge in production in, in yes. my in my opinion on, uh, on molecular genetic engineering or whatever you want to call it, uh, the new technology. I think that uh, we probably are going to stabilize yields much better. We're going to get uh, more resistance to insects and disease attack and adverse soil conditions. But uh, that's but not be the big thing. But I don't think you're going to get a great big jump. Again. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with yield potential per se. Yeah. It's got to do with... Security or safety. Safety is only hard to maintain some of the gains that you've already made. Reduces yeah. crop losses. Reduces crop losses, that's correct. Yeah.
1: Well, there you go. You have the hero of the first Green Revolution himself, the Rockefeller funded Dr. Borlaug, talking there to the Rockefeller funded Dr. Chandler of the Uh, International Rice Research Institute, aka the hero of the gene revolution, and they're both agreeing that the biotech technology is not going to be enough to increase yields in any significant way and will not be enough to combat the food security problems. But why listen to them? Well, why listen to them when we have the studies that show exactly what they were talking about decades ago has, in fact, come to fruition or lack of fruition in this case with lower yields and increased use and dependence on uh, chemicals in industrial farming because of the implementation of biotechnology. Huh, that's almost like it seems like a business plan for these agrochemical giants to sell their products. It's Funny how that develops when it's all funded into existence by the Rockefellers and the Fords and the other people who actually have their business partners and cronies and the people who sit on the boards of their foundations are actually the creators and the cronies of these corporations, which then go around and sell their products around the world. It almost seems like a business scheme instead of something that's funded by some sort of general love for humanity. Well, given all of this as it is, that's that's a lot to take in, but I just want to focus a little bit more on what the agenda really is and what the real problem with this is at its base. And there's a lot more to be said about the health effects of GMO foods and what it is doing to our bodies. You are what you eat. And I have gone into this in some depth before on this podcast, so I will uh, direct you to some of the previous episodes and videos that we've done on the subject of GMO food safety. And uh, that will be in the links for today's episode at uh, CorbettReport.com, of course. And I hope you will check into that. We could should and probably will in the future go much more in-depth into those health issues because the uh, the propaganda of the gene revolution always presents this as some sort of very, very clinical laboratory exercise of, and they show pictures of, of uh, scientists inserting things with, with, with syringes and very precise uh, uh, laboratory conditions when of course they're using gene guns to fire genes in randomly that cause random mutations that cannot be predicted and cannot be controlled and that have nonlinear random effects when put out into nature. But let's not discuss any of those messy details. Let's make it seem like this perfectly laboratory clinical process in which we can calculate every effect to the nth degree. And this is the most tested technology in the history of humanity. It's, It's perfectly safe. Well, there's a lot to be said along those lines. But let's get down to the base of why this agenda is so worrying and why it is not just a question of the rich trying to get more rich by implementing a business scheme in order to control the world's food supply, but what that control of the world's food supply means in political terms. And in order to do that, let's once again turn to the incomparable researcher F. William Engdahl. uh,
6: Since George W. Bush uh, went to the World Trade Organization in 2003, before the rubble had cleared in in baghdad even and pressed a suit against the uh, european union for blocking the licensing and approval of of gmo crops Uh, the u.s government has made genetic manipulation the spread of gmo seeds patented seeds from monsanto dow dupont and, and others a national security priority it's tantamount to the export of uh, defense weapons for the Pentagon and for the US budget it's a national security export sector agribusiness and especially patented seeds GMO seeds from Monsanto and company so the pressure on the European Union I know from direct reports out of Brussels I know from uh, intelligence networks grassroots of farmers and uh, political people across Europe is enormous there's corruption in the European food safety uh, authority the EFSA where uh, Monsanto and other front organizations of the GMO lobby finance the uh, the research work of scientists who are supposed to be neutral and independent and looking out for the food safety of of the European population so the pressure yes it's enormous
3: there's strong allegations there indeed i mean the US has a virtual monopoly in gm i mean do you think the US government is railroading its way into protected EU markets
6: well, they're certainly trying to, and uh, they've done that to a large extent in Spain uh, for a number of years now where the agribusiness interests have literally taken over the what used to be a, a delightfully uh, natural food culture in, in Spain and turned it into agribusiness uh, synthetic I call it fake foods, where you have bright red tomatoes delivered from spain southern spain into uh, german supermarkets and you bite into them and they uh, they taste like chemically altered water and not not real uh, tomatoes so this uh this is a massive massive pressure on the eu for one reason because the resistance in in the european union is one of the major resisting points to the proliferation of patented seeds worldwide and the US government, US government co holds the patent with Monsanto on Terminator seed technology. And they refuse to, to stop research on Terminator technology. So imagine if the European Union has Monsanto seeds and Monsanto switches those seeds off unless uh, the European Union does politically what uh, Washington wants in a particular situation, a scenario, or China or any other country, for that matter, Russia.
1: I hope you were paying special attention to that interview, especially the incredibly important point that Engdahl made there about how, when you have a very few companies that literally control the seeds and are monopolizing the seed supply for the food crops of the world, you are putting into the hands of a very few corporations and the very few people at the tops of those corporations the power over the global food supply. And the implications there are horrific. And one example that he gave there is if there's a uh, country that uh, that you want to wage warfare on of one kind or another, all you have to do is stop selling them your seeds. And because this Terminator technology is being gradually woven into the fabric of the food supply via this genetically engineered food crops, well... I guess that means that they won't be able to eat next year because they won't have any seeds to plant. And that is the type of world we are moving into when we shift our infrastructure over to this GM technology, the biotechnology, the gene revolution. However, it is being hyped. It is being sold to us for a specific reason. And that reason is that it puts incalculable power in the hands of the very, very few wealthy elite well-connected insiders, exactly as was planned from the outset of this agenda, which has been detailed in great depth by researchers like William Engdahl in his book Seeds of Destruction. So there's much more to be said about this. I hope you don't take this episode of this podcast is trying to be the total uh, documentation of everything that is wrong with this agenda it is as always just a starting point for your own research but before we wrap up today i want to address at least two of the main questions that people will inevitably have when confronting this subject and when we start to reject the gene revolution as the false promise that it is And of course, one of those questions is, well, if we don't use this biotechnology and if it's not going to be the answer to increasing crop yields, then how will we ever feed and clothe the people of the world? Well, feed specifically the people of the world without this type of breakthrough technology. And secondly, what can we do to fruitfully resist this GM agenda? Two separate topics, let's take them one at a time. First, let's talk about what the answer could be instead of the false solution that we're being proposed with this GM technology. And for more on that, let's turn to a report from Truthout from last year. Monsanto and Gates Foundation push GE crops on Africa. Well, nothing new there. This story starts off by saying, quote, Skimming the agricultural development section of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation website is a feel-good experience. African farmers smile in a bright slideshow of images amid descriptions of the foundation's fight against poverty and hunger. But biosafety activists in South Africa are calling a program funded by the Gates Foundation a Trojan horse to open the door for private agribusiness and genetically engineered seeds, including a drought-resistant corn that Monsanto hopes to have approved in the United States and abroad. The Water Efficient Maize for Africa, WEMA, program was launched in 2008 with a $47 million grant from the mega-rich philanthropists Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. The program is supposed to help farmers in several African countries increase their yields with drought and heat-tolerant corn varieties, but a report released last month by the African Center for Biosafety claims WEMA is threatening Africa's food sovereignty and opening new markets for agribusiness giants like Monsanto. The Gates Foundation claims that biotechnology, GE crops, and Western agricultural methods are needed to feed the world's growing populations, and programs like WEMA will help end poverty and hunger in the developing world. Critics say the foundation is using its billions to shape the global food agenda, and the motivations behind WEMA were recently called into question when activists discovered that Gates Foundation had spent $27.6 million on 500,000 shares of Monsanto stock, between April and June 2010. End quote. Well, more of that labyrinth that is being woven and the characters that are behind it. So, what is the proposed solution to this that doesn't have anything to do with this biotechnology? Well, let's turn to later in that article, where it says, quote, increasing crop yields is the bottom line for groups like the Gates Foundation but the IAASTD, that's a group that was referenced earlier in the article, recommends that sustainability should be the goal. The report does not rule out biotechnology, but suggests high-tech agriculture agriculture is just one tool in the toolbox. The report promotes agroecology, which seeks to replace the chemical and biochemical inputs of industrial agriculture with resources found in the natural environment. In March, a UN expert released a report showing that small-scale farmers could double their food production in a decade with the simple agroecological methods. The report flies in the face of the second green revolutionaries. Today's scientific evidence demonstrates that agroecological methods outperform the use of chemical fertilizers in boosting food production where the hungry live, especially in unfavorable environments, said Olivier de Schutter, the UN special rapporteur on the right to food and the author of the report. Malawi, a country that launched a massive chemical fertilizer subsidy program a few years ago, is now implementing agroecology, benefiting more than 1.3 million of the poorest people with maize yields increasing from one ton per hectare to two to three tons per hectare, etc., etc. The story goes on from there, and I will include a link to that report that was mentioned in there about agroecology and how it can be used to double the food production of the poorest regions of the world within 10 years without a single use of biochemical or biotech or gm uh, technology whatsoever simply by using natural methods of uh, ecology and taking uh, new approaches to agriculture that report is uh, linked up it will be linked up in the uh, show notes for this episode of the podcast i hope you will go there to look at it itself And of course, it is couched in the usual type of rhetoric that you would expect from a UN report about climate change and all of those uh, phony environmental scares that are being used to drive the agenda. But at any rate, the underlying concept of agroecology is something that does really bear further scrutiny and i think people should be researching into what it is and how it is proposed to function so i will also put a link into agroecology.org once again the promise is to double the food supply of the poorest regions of the world without a single implementation of the chemical industrial agricultural complex which is proposing the green revolution false promise that's one uh, one way of answering that question of the uh, how to increase crop yields without using this biotech, which, as we have seen, is decreasing crop yields. But the other question is, how do we actually resist the GMO agenda? How do we stop it in its tracks? And this is a very important question and one which there seems to be a very obvious answer to. And that was pointed out at the beginning of today's episode where people are marching, they're signing petitions, they're lobbying their governments. Oh government, please come in and make some rules to put some chains on these corporations so we can keep them down. Once again, relying on the myth that there is any difference between the corporations and the governments at the top level and that they really do want to suppress them but let's let's imagine just for a moment let's imagine that it truly is the case that governments are there and can be if we just got enough people to march out in the streets they can be turned around and they can use these these powers for good and they can force uh, gmo labeling for example on on foods and they can force uh, the, the 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 they could ban uh, terminator seed technology etc or they can do whatever we want if we were just wielding the big stick of government as long as we can get the people behind it and we can turn the power of the government against these corporations we can keep them down and we can stop these gmos from being proliferated well this is very much feeding into that regulation trap which i talked about earlier political action on that level is not the answer and it is not the answer for the very reason that even if you win that battle, it is uh, even if you get the government to make whatever rules that you think will be able to con... Chain down these foundations and these corporations so that they're not able to monopolize the food uh, industry of the the world, the global food supply, even if you win that battle, you can still, in fact you inevitably do, still lose the war because by ceding your sovereignty to the governments to come up with a solution to this crisis and to say that the government has to come in with their regulations and their regulations can keep those corporations and foundations chained down, you have thereby ceded the authority to the government for whatever future government to come along and to reverse those decisions or to make whatever kind of behind-the-scenes deals with those corporations and foundations that they want so that they can skirt certain regulations or there can be loopholes or they can selectively enforce various things. You put the power into the government's hands and thus cede the power away from yourself. In the end, this is a fight that we all fight each and every day and it is a choice that we all make in our own lives what we consume and to give that power to the government to try to keep down the corporations and foundations is to say that if there is a future government that reverses those decisions or makes different decisions then those decisions are valid and we must abide by them because the government is always the the arbiter of all power and authority and if we can just use that big club in order to beat down our opponents then it's a good thing but if it's being used to beat us down, well, then we must march against it. No, the real power starts with what we do and what we refuse to do. And if we refuse to eat these GMO products, then we make the difference, at least in our own lives. I can't control what anyone else does, but I can control what myself and my family does. And that's all anyone can really do. Now, it is one thing to say that we will not consume GMO project products, but given how deeply interwoven into the food supply, they have become that is almost impossible at this point it would require an almost unthinkable change in lifestyle for many people but the point is that we can change our habits we can change our lifestyle and we can start to wean ourselves off of the global food enslavement grid and to create that alternative global food supply which can be the only long-term solution to these problems because only when we have and have created that alternative food supply will we be able to completely and utterly shun and get rid of and destroy these Corporations that seek to have power over us because they only have power over us when we pay them our dollars to buy their monstrosities. So, one thing that you can do today to start getting the GMOs out of your food supply is to go to non GMOproject.org where they are documenting non GMO foods and products that you can buy that will be the alternatives so that you don't have to buy the GMO monstrosities. There are projects out there that are labeling and and finding non-gmo sourced foods and products that you can go and support with your dollars and it is when we individually start doing that that we will have an effect not by going and marching and signing a petition and asking mommy and daddy government to please make the rules so that the big corporations will give us what we want we don't want anything to do with the big corporations we want to go completely off of that system and to build up the alternative. So that is the long-term solution, not looking for more regulation to do it for us. (coughs) Excuse me. There's a lot more to be said here, and I know that this deserves fleshing out in greater detail, but let's leave that for another time. I hope I've given you enough to digest for today's episode of the podcast, and that was a knowing pun. And uh, certainly there will be a lot of links for you to follow in the documentation section, so I hope you do start doing some of this research for yourself and coming to some of your own conclusions about these topics. But rest assured, we will be returning to this dinner table to continue eating from this, uh, this repast of various information along these lines. And since I have strained the credulity of that, uh, that analogy as far as it will go, we'll leave things there for today. I am James Corbett thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me once again next week for another edition of the Corbett report
7: I want to know if it's verified so I don't harm myself but genetically modified I don't want, you. I don't want you to know told, them told we them we
6: to go. Say. say GMO